Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 119 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Coming up this week, amazingly, quite a number of my colonies are low on food in their brood boxes and I help out with a homemade beehive that's gone rogue. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypore Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypore Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypore. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypore Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Hi everybody and welcome back to another podcast. It's been a very fast week. It feels that just a very short time ago I was considering what to do when I was setting out hive stands at the oilseed rape pollination and looking forward to an exciting season of beekeeping and here we are just days away from the end of my summer flow. I think the routine of beekeeping also makes it feel like the weeks race past. The cycle of inspections, videos, podcast and repeat makes the days kind of melt into one continuous regime. Not that I'm complaining, but it does make the end of the summer season feel very close and the slow wind down towards autumn and winter begins. As I've mentioned before, the end of July signals the end of the summer nectar flow for me here in Norwich and I begin sorting colonies out for next season's oilseed rape pollination. I know this sounds crazy, but really my season is about to begin Preparation of the colonies for the oilseed rape is quite a long process, really. Obviously, it's not a difficult or time-consuming job. It's just long in that we start in August to be ready for April next year. That's almost nine months away. But if the bees are not readied now, a series of minor issues can lead to colonies failing to develop in the late winter and early spring months, that means we're not able to take advantage of that first spring crop. I'll talk more about the coming monthly tasks in a moment, but first I wanted to tell you about a fun project I have had a hand in at the moment. I say fun, but it's in inverted commas. Sometimes I get myself in the most awkward of scrapes by offering to help out fellow beekeepers and deal with their problem hives when really I should be concentrating on dealing with my own. A week or so ago, I received an email from a friend called Lorraine, who also happens to be our local beekeeping association secretary. She'd received a shout for help from another member of our group who had bees that were stinging their neighbours on the other side of a hedge line, and they urgently needed to move the bees away because there had been complaints. Now, sometimes when I get these emails... And I don't mean emails from Lorraine, I mean more generally emails from the wider beekeeping community asking for help to move bees or deal with angry bees or queenless colonies. It's obvious the beekeeper in question just hasn't thought through what they're doing and a simple suggestion of management or a procedure to follow is all that's needed. And a few weeks later I might get an email saying they followed my advice and it all worked out perfectly. Not always, but mostly it seems to work out. But sometimes there needs to be 
a more physical, hands-on approach, and the email from Lorraine was just that kind of email. Let's call the beekeeper in question Gary. Now, Gary has three beehives at an otapiary, and two of the colonies apparently have gone rogue, and they are stinging the neighbours. Lorraine had put out a general shout to the more experienced beekeepers in the association, and the only helpful advice to be given appeared to be pour petrol into them and destroy them. It's at this point the little voice in my head is saying, you can't let them destroy a perfectly healthy colony of bees, whilst at the same time I can hear Steph's voice saying, don't do it, you don't have the time. Steph, as you know, helps out with the videos and beekeeping, Actually, that's doing Steph a huge disservice. Without Steph's help, I'd probably struggle to get everything done. Anyway, I'm now torn between firing off an email offering help and simply ignoring the email, knowing if I respond, I have to explain myself. I just don't like to see healthy bees destroyed. They can always be recovered and brought back to more normal, calmer states, and I figured I could find some feasible reason for doing it when I explained myself to Steph, who of course would be needed to help lift the hives on and off the truck. I offered my help, and it was immediately accepted. Next followed a series of emails and missed phone calls trying to set up the collection of said hives. I asked for the colonies to be stripped back, honey supers removed, and the colonies strapped down, ready to be moved, so I could just pop in, pick them up, drive away, drop them off at my apiary, and deal with them another day. The scene was set for a fairly easy turnaround, and I was happy that I had convinced Steph of the merits of helping out. It starts getting dark around 9pm here at the moment, so the plan was to turn up just at that time, block up the entrances, and head away. The first part of the plan went exactly to plan. We turned up at 9 o'clock. The apiary wasn't actually at the house we went to, Rather, it was a large block of land down a track, through a mix of sheds and outbuildings, and winding around a small holding, piled high with very specifically sorted groups of equipment and raw materials, designed to make it as awkward as possible to get the bees in the ranger with its rather large turning circle. Most normal people would call the piles of raw materials and groups of equipment by the term junk, but each to their own, I was particularly drawn to the mountain of bicycle frames. How many bicycle frames does one person need? Anyway, I managed to get the truck around the obstacle course to the beehives, which were buried in long grass and weeds. What I saw next made my heart sink. Not because of the bees, but because I knew Steph was going to have one of those I told you so type of moments. The first hive was approximately six feet tall, with five supers on it, the second was not much better. It was a little smaller with just three supers on it. I was assured the supers were just empty space for the bees to occupy, as they were large colonies. The more interesting point to note was the white sticky tape that had been used to wrap the joints between the supers and the brood box, as apparently the supers were mostly homemade and didn't actually fit perfectly. Isn't it funny how you never get the full story prior to saying yes to a job? Both hives appeared to be wound in the white tape, which was apparently going to keep the joints secure. I got one of those sideways glances from Steph, an indication that the I told you so comment was looming at the front of her mind. It was then I realised the hives had been strapped to the hive stands, 
making the overall height of the tallest something around six feet, as I mentioned. I was obviously going to have to carry out some housework before we could go anywhere. The bees hadn't yet been blocked in for the journey, and before I could comment, I was told new blocks had been made to secure the entrances, which were going to be fitted at this precise moment. Gary then produced a lump hammer and a new entrance block, and proceeded to hammer the piece of wood into the hive, dislodging the existing entrance block that was already there. And, at this point, I'm struggling to find the right words to describe the effect this action had on the bees. Let's just say the angry bees became even more angry, and the comedy just continued when Gary announced the entrance block wouldn't fit. Angry bees were then flooding out of the hive, and he made a hasty retreat to some distance away. I opted to let them calm down and offered to take control of the situation, an offer that was gratefully accepted. The second hive had yet to be disturbed, so a simple strip of foam pushed into the entrance was all that was needed to block the bees in place. Why don't beekeepers take the easy option instead of over-engineering the task in hand? Anyway, this colony was only four feet tall, but had also been partly strapped to the stand, so we unbuckled it, used my own straps to re-secure it, and then discovered it was probably full of honey. It weighed an absolute tonne. Another glance from Steph. This is going well, I thought. We manhandled the hive through the undergrowth and over tree stumps to the truck and got it safely on board. Again, it was decked out in white sticky tape, but it seemed to be secure. The larger, angry colony appeared to have calmed down now, so again I fitted a strip of foam across the now wide-open entrance, the original entrance block being knocked back into the hive. It was another simple task, but now instantly complicated, as the floor and the brood box didn't actually fit together properly, and although white tape was surrounding it, a very large gap at the back between the brood box and the floor was allowing yet more angry bees to escape and attack me. Several stings later, I managed to get the tape to stick to the hive body, and we again found the hive strapped to the stand. Several more glances and tense minutes passed as we re-strapped and lifted the again heavy hive onto the back of the truck. I know Gary was very grateful for the assistance, and it was very obvious that help was needed, but I really have to listen to that little voice, a.k.a. Steph, before I take on these jobs. The bees are now safely in one of my isolation apiaries and need a lot of attention to put right the state of the colony before we get into the autumn and winter months. Not least, being transferred to a decent, secure hive that fits together and will give the bees some protection. I'll report back perhaps on video and again here on the podcast as to how these colonies survive. We have to give one of them back, the agreement being I keep the angry ones and deal with them rather than they get destroyed. But I do think it's going to take a bit of work, and I'm really not sure what I'm going to find once I get into them. Stay tuned over the coming weeks for an update. Talking about preparing these bees for autumn brings me back to the opening comments about jobs for the next couple of months. August and September, for me, follow a fairly traditional pattern, treat and feed. August is the start of the quieter months for me, No Himalayan balsam or heather honey to go searching for. The tap gets turned off quite sharply at the end of July, and we then begin our preparations for next year. 
I'm using Apitraz again this year. This is the Varroa treatment I used last year, and it worked well for me and my bees. The active ingredient is called Amitraz, and I've discussed how it works previously, but I'll do a recap in a week or two. September is our normal feeding month. I like to feed the bees prior to the ivy flowering, which seems to happen earlier each year, but generally, for us, mid to late September. But this is where I offer a word of caution, particularly to the beginner beekeepers listening. The process I normally follow is one that you'll find fairly well publicised in the books and online, but this year is going to be different, and you need to use your newfound beekeeping skills to see what's happening in your beehive and not just follow what you read or see online. And this is why. I'm noticing a lot of my colonies this summer are not storing any nectar, and thus honey, in their brood boxes. Plenty of honey stored in the supers, but the brood boxes that were full of oilseed rape honey just a month ago are completely empty. Now this isn't happening with all colonies, but more than I normally see like this at this stage in the season. The good news is they won't be clogged up with solid oilseed rape honey for the winter. The bad news is if I remove all of the honey supers, there's a real probability that colonies will starve before September before I would normally feed them. You can do a couple of things here, but first you need to get into your hives and inspect them. Know what you're looking for and check them thoroughly. Like I said, not all colonies will be in this state and your bees might be perfectly okay, but it's got to be worth having a check and not just assume that they have plenty of food as you whip off the honey. Firstly, you could leave them a super of honey. It's what they've stored it for after all. Secondly, if you're going to remove the honey, and I would say there's no problem with doing that, but if you do remove the honey, you have got to replace it immediately with something else, and that means feeding them. I will be treating and feeding at the same time this year. The Apitraz treatment takes around 8 to 10 weeks, so I can't delay that. But if I don't start feeding too, the bees will probably not survive for more than a week or two, particularly the strongest, hungriest colonies. The books, and more particularly online, will tell you to feed your bees in late summer, early autumn, September time. Also, on social media, you'll read and hear a lot of beekeepers telling you to feed later and that they don't do this or they don't do that. And if you do anything other than what they say, you're a rubbish beekeeper, along with all sorts of other advice. Ignore it all and do what's best for your bees. If you want to leave a full super of honey on your bees, then do that. If you want to remove the honey and feed, then do that also. Just make sure that whatever you do, you're taking good care of your bees and helping them as they prepare themselves for the long nights ahead. Remember, they'll soon be producing winter bees that will survive many more weeks than the slimmed-down summer foraging bees, and they'll need resources to do just that. We'll all need to start checking colonies to make sure they're queen right, healthy and have enough stored food in them to see them through to next year. I, for one, will be feeding syrup. It's still warm enough to be feeding a light syrup. I'll be using the Appy Mix from Modern Beekeeping over the next month or so. I do have some in stock here if you're local, but if you're not, check out the link in the podcast notes. I'm sure Paul at Modern Beekeeping will have plenty of stock, but it's worth getting in early before there's a mad rush. I will have some stock of syrup if you're local and want to collect it from me to save on the very high carriage charges for syrup these days. 
And on that note, it's time for my mad rush out of the door to check on my bees. Please do take a look at the extra content available on my Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping, short and sweet. Mm-hmm.